cold outside, I want you to get into your spiritual calisthenics, so I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's Word. Our uh, passage today is in John chapter 12, verse 27 through verse 36. Now is my soul troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. The crowd stood there and heard it and said that it was that thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, This voice has come for your sake and not mine. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of the world be cast out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd asked him, We have heard from the law that Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is the Son of Man? Jesus said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. This is God's word to us. Amen. You can be seated. So we, uh, as we kick off this uh, new year and uh, we meet in a new location back on Sunday morning, um, I'm not saying it's a coincidence, but as all of these good things have happened to us, the uh, University of Michigan is a national champion. Can we give it up for the blue, Team 144, right? Um, it uh, was fun uh, to watch the game. Uh, I know some of you may have got to take in. Uh, the parade uh, yesterday, and uh, I love it that in Michigan, like, we don't cancel parades even when it snows like four inches and it's cold. I bet they would have canceled it today, but maybe not. I don't know. Um, but uh, I, it was uh, it was it was a great game and uh, really fun to watch um, as well as to celebrate uh, the team. It kind of reminds me in some ways, you know, we, we make much of things that are, are worthy of being made much of, right? And so uh, you celebrate and you... Uh, you make much of a team like like Michigan who wins the championship because they're they're deserving of it. Uh, they're a great team and uh, and and went through the gauntlet of uh, the playoffs and and beat. Um, uh, our, our, uh, one of our other pastors would say they did perhaps beat the best team uh, in the country uh, in the Georgia Bulldogs, uh, but that's for Pastor Chris, but uh, they beat, uh, beat some of the other ones. They're worth making much of. We, we make much of things that we love. We make much of things that we believe in, much of things that we, we know that work. Um, and, and when you talk to somebody, you know the things that they like and that they think are important because they make much of them. Maybe their family, maybe their work, it may be something that they enjoy, some hobby. We make much of the things that are worthy of being made much of. And, and today I want us to talk about making much of Christ. And this is uh, the third uh, week in our Vision 2024 uh, series where we're looking at God's Word, thinking about uh, what God is calling us to in the new year. And I, I come back to, to our mission. It's, it's what guides us and what we do. We want to be a church who multiplies disciples, who delight in, declare, and display the gospel uh, in all of life and for the good of our community. Uh, that the call to, to, to be and to make disciples comes from Jesus and the, the fleshing that out as we do, as delighting in, declaring and displaying the gospel is saying that our, our living for Christ begins with loving Christ. 
Uh, we're, we're not just busy with doing stuff for him. We, we want to know and love him. And out of that flows a life, word and deed, of seeking to, uh, to make him known, to make much of him in our actions, in our words. Uh, and we do that uh, not just on an occasion uh, of a gathering on Sunday morning, but in our everyday life. And as we do that, as God's people, we believe that it's for the good of our community as we seek to, uh, to love and to serve uh, our community through uh, uh, declaring and displaying the gospel. Uh, and in some ways, as we step and we look at that mission, we could unpack that as a part of a vision series for the new year. We could talk about our strategy, our plans. What, I'm, what I've done over the last three weeks, and, and including today, isn't so much to unpack a strategy as much as just to remind us of the foundational things that God's calling us to as his people. Uh, we, we said that uh, as we think about carrying out our mission this new year, we, we don't want to just be so busy doing that we forget to be people who wait. God calls us to be people who wait on him. And waiting is defined by, by worshiping and, and by prayer and by a people who are dependent and expectant uh, and giving God uh, the, the praise that he's due. We also, we also know that if we are to be faithful in our mission, um, we want to be people who are walking in the spirit. Uh, one of the scariest things to me about ministry is that it's possible to do ministry in your own strength. Uh, it's, it's possible to, to plant a church, to, to grow a church in your own strength, in your own wisdom, in your own power. Um, and, and, of course, we always are questioning our own hearts. We're like, am I leaning on my own wisdom and, and, and strength here? Or am I leaning on the Lord? Um, but we're reminded that what lasts, what's eternal, what matters is that which is empowered by the Spirit. And it's sometimes a vague concept, but we, we looked last week at how to, to walk in the Spirit is to, um, is to spend time in God's Word. It's to spend time with God's people. It's to uh, uh, be serious about sin. It's to, uh, it's to pray and then act in dependence on God. Um, and, and today, as we, we think about these things, it, it really all leads to this, to, to walk in the power of the Spirit and to, to wait on the Lord. All leads us to be a people who are about Jesus. That's what God's calling us to be, to be a people who make much of him. At the heart of our passage in John 12, 27 through 36 is this truth. The glory of God, that's who God is in his fullness on display. Uh, the glory of God is displayed in the cross of Christ. To, to know God, to know his character in its fullness can be seen in the cross. Uh, one, one author says that the glory of God is his character. And, the, and, and for God to be glorified is when his character is revealed. So the glory of God is his character being put on display. And for God to be glorified is when his character is revealed. And I would add, when it's enjoyed by others. It's not just the showing of his character, but it's the seeing and the enjoying of his character. The believing, the receiving who he is. And that's what our passage is going uh, to do today. So today we're looking at what Christ accomplished in his death on the cross. And how that compels us to live lives that make much of him. Uh, that's that's what I want us to see. And and you could sum up what our passage, I think, is is saying and leading us to is to say we make much of Christ because God is committed to making much of himself. We make much of Christ because God is committed to making much of himself. Let's unpack this idea of God being committed to making much of himself. 
So uh, in verse 27, uh, we, we see that uh, Jesus has come to this moment. Uh, in some ways, this is a, uh, an equivalent of a Garden of Gethsemane moment for Jesus in the Gospel of John. Uh, and uh, he is thinking ahead to the hour um, that is to come. And the, the hour that is to come is a reference to his death and uh, the suffering that would, would unfold. In the, in the passage right before this, uh, it's Jesus has come into Jerusalem, the triumphal entry. You see that at the beginning of chapter 12. Uh, and then there uh, is this uh, interaction where some Greeks... Uh, who were there for the festival, they come and, uh, and, and they say uh, to, I think it's to, is it Philip? Uh, they say, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Uh, I, I have some uh, friends who have uh, some older school pulpits at the church, which one, just an upgrade. Uh, I'm glad you don't have to see me, you know, pump the pulpit this week, right? I don't know if you pay attention to that in other weeks where you have to raise up the music stand. Last week in particular, I got the bad one uh, that it pretty much every time my Bible's on it, it just kind of goes down. Uh, so this is pretty solid. Uh, I'm excited about that. Uh, but I have some friends who have like the old school wood pulpit. And on the, on the top of the pulpit, it says, sir, we wish to see Jesus. I love that question. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. These Greeks uh, come and ask Jesus of it. It's kind of this um, little bit of a foreshadowing. Jesus is coming to Jerusalem for his triumphal entry on Palm Sunday as all of the Jews are there uh, gathering and preparing to, to worship. And it's the Greeks who are coming to seek him. And we're reminded that Jesus has come for all nations, Jews and Gentiles. And in that conversation, they wish to see Jesus. And and as Jesus interacts uh, with them, he says something similar uh, that he's going to say in our passage. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And he goes on to say that um, nothing, just like a grain of wheat, it falls into the earth and dies and remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And Jesus is talking uh, in a nutshell uh, about what our passage is about, how he is going to be glorified through his death. But his death is something that you don't typically think about being glorifying is is glorifying because it's an obedience to the father and it's going to bring about life for all who believe in him. Uh, Because as he falls into the ground, uh, as he dies uh, on the cross and is buried, through it, he is going to bring life to all who trust in him. New life, eternal life, abundant life, as the Gospel of John tells us, is available because Jesus died and rose again and all who believe in him will receive that life. And so it's with his death in mind that he's kind of, uh, we, we see when he says in verse 27, my soul is troubled. What he's troubled about is his death. And, and naturally, when you think about uh, if, you, if you knew your death was coming, you too would be troubled, right? Like we would all be troubled uh, by that thought. I, I, and, and yet I don't think Jesus is troubled just merely because of his death. Uh, the word is it, literally his, sur- his soul is stirred up and unsettled. And we see this in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane passages in the Gospels. Uh, what Jesus is thinking about in this moment is not merely the physical pain of the cross, but the spiritual separation from the Father through bearing the penalty for our sin. And, and he has this interaction where we, we get a glimpse of it. He said, what should I say as I've come to this hour? Should I say, Father, save me from this hour? Similar to what Jesus prayed in the garden. He said, if this cup can pass from me. Uh, there the language is cup, not hour. Same, same kind of uh, thing that it's talking about with different imagery. Should, can this cup pass from me? Lord, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. 
But he says, not, nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. It's a similar thing that he's saying here as he thinks about his death. He says, Father, should I pray that you would deliver me from this hour? No. It says, for this purpose I have come. God sent Christ, His Son, into the world. The Father sent the Son into the world to rescue us. It was for this purpose. He came to die for sin. This is why He came. And multiple times before this moment, Jesus has talked about the hour. And typically, like, um, you can look this up in John chapter 2, verse 4, at the wedding feast where He introduces His ministry. In John 7, verse 30, in John 8, uh, verse 20, Jesus is going to say something of the effect, My hour has not come. But now it switches. Now he says, starting in the passage before this and in ours, the hour has come. His death and the cross is before him. This is the the focus of the the remainder of what's to come. And and in the Gospel of John, you get John 13 through 17, which is basically uh, Jesus with his disciples washing their feet, uh, giving them final instruction, and, and then a glimpse into his prayer life. Uh, as Jesus prays for the church. And after John 17, the high priestly prayer, it's, uh, it's, it's betrayal, it's, uh, it's the, the court trials, and, and ultimately his crucifixion. And, and, and so as Jesus looks at his death, here's what I want us to see. What's on his mind is glory. As Jesus looks at his death, what is on his mind is that the Father would be glorified. This is God's commitment to glorify himself. Or when I say make much of himself, that's what I'm saying, is to glorify himself. So in this moment, as he is unsettled by what's before him, the the agony of being separated from the Father through bearing uh, the judgment of our sin, he says, what should I say? It's for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. That's what's on his mind. Glorify your name. And he goes on and <clears throat> he's going to say uh, the Father is going to respond to him in this moment with a voice from heaven. There are three times that a voice from heaven speaks to Jesus at his baptism, at his transfiguration. And here in the Gospel of John, we see in this moment before, uh, before he goes to the cross, the Father says, I have glorified it. Uh, and, and he goes on to say, this is verse 20, the latter half of verse 28, and I will glorify it again. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. So here we see Jesus saying, Father, glorify your name. And the Father responding, saying, I have glorified it and I will glorify it. We'll unpack that in just a moment. But elsewhere, outside of this uh, passage, we see in John 13, 31, Jesus says, now the Son of Man is glorified. Speaking of himself and God, speaking of the Father, is glorified in him. Follow John 17, 1. I'm just going to skip around a few different passages. Jesus, again, speaks his word. He lifts his eyes to the heavens. This is the beginning of the high priestly prayer. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. So in these three passages that I've read, we see the Son concerned about glorifying the Father and the Father concerned about glorifying the Son so that the Father might be glorified. And then John 16, 14, Jesus tells us as he's talking about the Holy Spirit that after he dies and is raised, he will send the Holy Spirit. And what is the Spirit's job? The Spirit, in part, the Spirit's job is to glorify me, Jesus says. So the Spirit sent by Jesus and the Father to glorify Jesus. 
So the father's worried about glorifying the son. The son's seeking to glorify the father. The spirit comes to glorify the son. There's this commitment for God to glorify himself, to reveal who he is, to make much of himself. The, the testimony of the scriptures is clear. God is glorious. Sometimes I joke when I read the Gospel of John and, uh, and, you, and you start to read through it and there's like all these phrases where it's like the Son would be in you and the Spirit would be in you so that you would be in me and my joy would be complete in you and you and him and me and you and we and us. And you're like, how, how is it all working? You know, like I don't understand all of the prepositions going on. Um, and, and, and really what it's talking about is you see the unity of the Godhead, Father, Son and Spirit committed to making much of himself. That, that he is displaying his full character through the relationship of the Father and the Son, particularly in Jesus accomplishing our redemption and Jesus going to the cross. The emphasis in all of these passages really is on the Son. And it's telling us that if you want to know what God is like, then you look at the Son. Who is God? Yes, we see through the scriptures the testimony of who he is, but it's really through the through the coming of Christ that we have a glimpse of the fullness of who Jesus, uh, of who God is by looking at Christ. Consider how John says this at the beginning of John chapter one, verses 14 through 16. John chapter one, 14 through 16 says the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's God existed in eternity past, created all things, took on flesh and dwelt among us. That's Christmas, right? This is the incarnation. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. It goes on to say uh, the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth has come through Jesus. Listen to verse 18. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the father's side. He, Jesus has made him known. Jesus makes God known and reveals the glory of God. And for God to glorify himself is not for God to be narcissistic and a megalomaniac who is just concerned about himself. Um, Ultimately, because God is the most supreme, the most worthy of all beings, it's right for him to glorify himself. There is no other glory to give. In fact, this is how he speaks in the Old Testament. I will not share my glory with another because no one else is worthy of the same glory. He is the only one that's worthy of glory. And and furthermore, I love the answer of John Piper to this question. He once was asked, is God's passion for his glory not a sinful form? How is it not a sinful form of narcissism and megalomania? He said the answer is that God's passion for his glory is the essence of his love to us. For God to make much of himself as he does in the scriptures, particularly through the cross, through Jesus' death and resurrection, is actually the greatest expression of his love for us. Where the glory of God is most fully seen in Jesus, in his death and in his resurrection, is also where the love of God is most fully seen. His glory is for our good. His glory is the expression of his love to us. It's not narcissism or megalomania, Piper says. It's love. God's love for us is not mainly his making much of us, but his giving us the ability to enjoy making much of him forever. It's to know him and to make him known and which God makes possible through Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross. So this this is God's commitment to making much of himself. And as I thought about this, I think it's important to to think about a slight nuance here. 
there's, there's a difference between um, making something glorious that maybe isn't otherwise and then seeing the glory of something, right? So um, <clears throat> making something glorious that isn't otherwise. So uh, a number of years ago, uh, I decided, I don't know if school was out or what, but I was watching Amelia at the time, uh, our oldest daughter, and we decided to make a cake. And just on the whim, we decided to make a cake. The problem was we didn't have enough eggs for the recipe, and we didn't have regular sugar uh, for the recipe, and maybe one other ingredient that we didn't have. But I was committed. I had already committed, actually, to make the cake, and so we were going to make the cake. Um, and so we made the cake with powdered sugar and one shy egg shy of what we were supposed to have. Um, and I, I, I went all out on this cake. Like, I made my own frosting uh, as well. Like, I, I was all in uh, to this. The problem was I didn't have enough frosting, and then my cake didn't come out the way that I wanted it to, right? And so this, this probably would have been on, like, they used to have a show called Worst Cooks in America. Like, it probably airing on that side of things. Um, however, we, we made the best of it, and we took the cake out. It was yellow cake with chocolate frosting, solid option. Uh, we took the cake out. The cake tasted fairly uh, unedible, but uh, we took the cake out and we decided to decorate it. Uh, we didn't have enough chocolate uh, frosting to decorate it all, so we just like decorated two-thirds of it. Um, and then we put sprinkles on it. Um, and then I turned the cake so that all you could see was the part that we, uh, we decorated. The part on the back where it was falling apart and we didn't have enough frosting, we left that out and we took a picture of the part that was decorated and it looked good. We made glorious something, kind of, something that was otherwise unglorious uh, and glorious. I don't know what the right um, prefix is, but um, that's different than, than going to see the Grand Canyon in its fullness or standing on the beach and watching a sunrise or sunset uh, on a beautiful summer day. Like, that's going and beholding something that's truly glorious. You, you don't go and make a beach picture glorious. In fact, when you take a picture of the sunset at the beach and you take a picture of the Grand Canyon, you come back and you show it to people and they're like, oh, that's cool. You're like, you don't understand. Like, it was massive, you know? Like, it was beautiful. It's hard to take a person in, in a picture to take them there to see it. Because that's, you, you can't fully explain or capture the beauty and the glory of what you have seen. We're not making God glorious. He's not a cake that needs to be positioned and angled for a good Insta photo, right? Like he's, he's the creator of the Grand Canyon and the sunset uh, at the ocean. Like He's the creator and the author of it all, and it all declares and displays His handiwork and His glory. And, and the, the, the fullness of his glory, the, uh, the seeing who he is, his character being revealed, we see it when we look at Jesus. So God wants to see him for who he is, and the clearest picture of who he is can be found in the cross. And that's actually uh, kind of what we see unfolding in our passages. As Jesus um, says, I'm, I've glorified, Jesus, the Father says, I've glorified my name and I will glorify it again. Speaking of his life and then ultimately through his death and resurrection, how the Father is going to glorify it. The crowd is somewhat confused by what takes place. Some thought they heard thunder. Some thought they hear an angel. Jesus is saying, this isn't for me. It's for you to, to, to kind of have the words that he's about to speak uh, confirmed. Um, but all of it is, is showing us that what 
in many ways, setting up what Jesus is about to say after the Father confirms uh, his being glorified in Jesus. Um, the, the, him speaking from the heavens kind of perks up the audience to say what Jesus is about to say, pay attention to. Um, and what Jesus focuses on is how ultimately his glory is revealed through what he is about to do, through the hour that has come, through his death. Because he says, um, <clears throat> after he says this voice, verse 30, the voice has come for your sake, not mine. He says, now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. Lest we were unclear what he was speaking about, he said in verse 33, he said this to show them by what kind of death he was going to die. And not only did Jesus intend to talk about his death, but they kind of understood that Jesus was talking about his death because in question, in questioning him in response to verse 34, they say, we heard that the Son of Man... Uh, how can he be lifted up? We heard that the Son of Man, the Christ, the Messiah, is to live forever. So how can the Son of Man be lifted up? How can he die if he is to live forever? The fullness and understanding that the, that the Messiah would come and die and then rise. That the, judge, the resurrection wasn't just at the end of time, but it was coming in the middle of time through Jesus, which was the down payment for our future resurrection. All of that's still unclear. Uh, to them, and so, uh, but it is clear to us as we read this passage. Jesus's emphasis here is to talk about his death, to talk about the cross. And I want us to to think for a moment of what Jesus accomplished on the cross. And and, and remember, our our focus here is that we are to make much of Christ because God is committed to making much of Himself. Consider how God has made much of Himself. Through the cross. Consider how God reveals his character through the cross. And it, it lists three things that he accomplishes through the cross, starting in verse 31. It tells us that he judged the world. It says in verse 31, now is the judgment of this world. Notice the word now at the beginning of that. When we think about judgment, when do you think judgment comes? We typically think about judgment coming at the end of time. Jesus says, now judgment has come. The, the emphasis on judgment now, it, it reminds us uh, of a concept that we've talked about before. Maybe you're familiar with the already not yet aspect of the kingdom of God. The sense of it, it's true, the, the kingdom has come through Jesus entering the world, but it's not yet fully here. Uh, it's still uh, to come. We're still waiting on the fullness of the kingdom. There's a sense in which both with this statement and the one that follows where there's an already not yet aspect of it. Uh, now is the judgment, Jesus says, but at the same time, it's also true. There is still a judgment to come. And so what does it mean for now to be the judgment? And so uh, <clears throat> It says in John chapter 5, verse 21 through 29, I want to read this longer section because I think Jesus unpacks the similar statement. He shows us both of the now and the not yet. Uh, it says, as the father raises the dead and gives life to them, so also the son gives, gives life to whom he will. The father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. And whoever doesn't honor the Son doesn't honor the Father who sent him. And then Jesus has these statements throughout the Gospel of John where he'll say, truly, truly. Uh, it's kind of like a pay attention to what Jesus is about to say. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. So to trust in Jesus is to have eternal life. And he does not, that person who trusts in Jesus, does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. 
does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. But then he goes on to say, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. He goes on to say uh, after this uh, at the end of verse 29, do not marvel at this for an hour is coming when all who are in tombs who are dead will hear his voice and come out. And those who have done good to the resurrection of life and to those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So in that passage, Jesus kind of mentions both. There is a sense in which judgment comes now through those who trust in Jesus. Judgment falls on Jesus rather than on us. But there is coming a day when judgment is going to come to all. There will be a a resurrection and there will be a, a judgment that will come. And there's this future judgment that is still held out. And Jesus is here saying that God is glorified by him bringing judgment into the world now. So that Jesus, through his death on the cross, can, can take the judgment that we deserve. Judgment comes into the world now because Jesus is receiving the judgment we deserve when he goes to the cross. Judgment actually happens in the middle of time at the coming of Christ on the cross. Because Jesus, the scriptures tell us, 2 Corinthians 5.21, he who knew no sin became sin for us. The, the law said, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Galatians 3.10 said, Jesus became the curse for us. Jesus took the judgment that every sinner deserves because of God's holiness and his righteousness. And if you trust in him, that means you move from being condemned to being forgiven, from from death to life. That that is how God is glorified through Jesus' death on the cross. Jesus was judged for us now, so to speak, on the cross. So that we don't have to be judged at the end of time. All who believe in him, Jesus says, do not come into judgment, but instead pass from death to life. That's good news. That there's real forgiveness. There's there's real freedom that can come now to all who call on Christ. And yet it's sobering news that those who don't call on him bring themselves under judgment. And John uh, 3 Uh, We see that uh, familiar passage to many of us where Jesus says that um, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. But but what's often forgotten is um, what follows. He says, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world in verse 17, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Listen to verse 18. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Judgment has come now. Through trusting in Christ, you're, you're, you're not condemned after trusting in Christ. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that light has come into the world and that people love darkness rather than light because their works were evil. You can be confident that when your life on this earth ends that you won't face judgment. If you trust in Jesus who was judged in your place on the cross. That's glorious. But what Jesus says next is also encouraging. Because he tells us that he not only has judgment come. But that the, uh, the ruler of this world, speaking of the devil, has been defeated. Has been cast out. Look at how it says it um, in verse 31. That the ruler of this world will be cast out. Uh, 
This reminds us of a passage in, in Hebrews chapter uh, 2. If you want to flip over there, just mark it to look at later. In Hebrews chapter 2, the author there makes this uh, poignant statement concerning, uh, concerning what Christ has accomplished. It speaks of his incarnation. It was fitting for him, um, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, uh, that should the founder of their salvation be perfected through suffering. He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. This is why Jesus took on flesh and he's not ashamed to be called our brothers is is what the author is saying. He quotes from the Old Testament, uh, which uh, these statements, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And behold, I and the children of God he has given me. And then it says this in verse 14. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook on the same things. This is an incarnation. That through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus on the cross defeated Satan so that the fear of death and the slavery and bondage to sin would be broken. Some of you, like me, have stood at a graveside and perhaps even heard that passage. Some perhaps have reflected on the brevity of life and been reminded that none of us are really promised beyond today. If what Jesus did on the cross hadn't taken place, and if our trust isn't in him, what hope do we have to not fear death and to be subject to the lifelong slavery of sin and death? But Jesus tells us, notice what he says, now. Just like, just like we saw with, uh, with the judgment of the world, now the ruler of this world has been cast out. The, the one who bond, keeps us in bondage to the fear of death and, and slavery to sin has been cast out and has been defeated. Elsewhere in scripture it says that Satan has come uh, to still kill and destroy But Jesus has come to defeat the ruler of this world. And John chapter 16, verses 8 through 11, speaking of the spirit, says that he will come convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment because they do not believe in me concerning righteousness because I go to the father and you will see me no longer. And then it says this, he will convict concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. The Spirit convicts uh, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. How was the ruler of this world judged? The ruler of this world was judged on the cross. On the cross, he was judged. We, we know that he was judged because <clears throat> we see that uh, <clears throat> the, uh, the work of Christ on the cross that was done for us silenced the accusation and the accusations of Satan. One of the names of of Satan throughout the scripture is the the great accuser. That he accuses the saints. He he tells of the the sins of the saints. It's like a a picture of a courtroom. That it's it's like uh, the accuser comes in and he he has a long list of accusations concerning the saints that he wants to present to God. So that they might stand under his judgment rather than being forgiven and, and free as his children. And all throughout life, apart from Christ, we hear those accusations. 
Sometimes Satan uses uses our own thoughts, uses perhaps the words of others to remind us of the accusations. And sometimes the Spirit of God is at work convicting us of sin, reminding us that the accusations are, are true. And sometimes the accusations are true. And apart from Christ, we have no defense. But here the language is, it's as if the court case is going on. And while the accuser stands to offer his accusations, Christ enters and the accuser is thrown out. There's a song by Shane and Shane called Embracing Accusation. You got to go home and listen to it today. Um, whatever version of my notes that I intended to send to myself, I sent myself the wrong one. So I'm not sure at this point in the message what the exact words are, but um, it's fun sometimes to make those realizations. Um, but uh, the words of the song, I think I remember. It's something along the lines of the, the devil is singing the age-old song concerning our accusations of our sins. The part that I remember is this. But it's as if he has forgot the refrain. Jesus saves. The accuser is cast out. Our sins are cast out. The, The emphasis of that song is you can say to the accuser, you're right. The accusations are true. But Jesus saves. Jesus has forgiven. Jesus has defeated sin, Satan, and death. And therein is our freedom. Therein is our salvation and all our joy. And through this, Jesus is revealing his glory and and bringing judgment, taking the judgment that we deserved and and casting out the the ruler of this world, Satan, that we don't have to live according to his accusations. We don't have to live in bondage to fear of death and and subject to our sin. Instead, we're freed. And, And then the third thing that Jesus does through his death is that he will draw people to himself. That when the Son of Man is lifted up, verse 32, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. This is speaking of how he is going to draw people to himself through salvation. That, uh, <clears throat> that all people from all walks of life, just like we saw in the previous passage, Greeks, Gentiles, Jews, doesn't matter your background. He is drawing all people to himself, drawing his own to himself. And, and he is effective in drawing his sheep to himself that they hear his voice and they come, John 10 says to us. And we, we know in many ways, when we think about God being glorified in the cross, that it's on the cross that God shows who he is. Think about this. I love the picture of Exodus 34. Moses asked God, show me your glory, God. And God responds in Exodus 34 with this statement concerning his character. Moses says, show me your glory. And God says this about his glory. Verses 5 through 6. So the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. This is who God declares himself to be. Now think about that for a minute. Is that not what the cross shows? A God who is 
who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And yet, He will not sweep our sin under the rug. He will by no means clear the guilty without the just judgment for sin. That's the cross. God is just and righteous and holy. He upholds it because on the cross, Jesus bears the judgment that we deserved. That was the agony that Jesus did not look forward to. To be separated from the Father because He became our sin and took our sin upon Himself. But yet, the glory and the beauty of the cross, it it reminds us of the, the high cost of sin on one hand. And on the other hand, it shows us the beauty of God and that it draws us to Him. And that we, we see God showing mercy and grace to those who are undeserving. And it's not merely just that we look at it and are drawn to it. But God himself, he says, draws people to himself through Christ being lifted up. I don't have time to read this passage in full. But John 3.16, right before John 3.16 and verses 14 and 15. Jesus draws another parallel with Israel when they are wandering in the wilderness because of their sin. Um, God brings judgment on, on them, but he tells Moses to make this bronze serpent and lift it up on a pole. And, and he tells all the Israelites who are getting bitten by these snakes, if they look up at the serpent lifted up on the pole, that they'll be spared, that they'll be healed. Why in the world some people did not look up at the serpent? I don't know. But some didn't. But all who did were saved. And, and, and Jesus says, just as Moses lifted the serpent up uh, on, the, on the pole and all who looked to it were saved, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. And all who look to Him will be saved. And it's on the heels of that that, that we see John 3.16, that God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever would believe in Him would not perish but have eternal life. God is calling people to Himself. Revealing the fullness of his glory, his holiness, his beauty, his justice, his righteousness. And all who look and believe will be saved. God is committed to making much of himself and he makes much of himself through the cross of Christ. And it finally brings us to the the last point that we are to make much of Christ. But before I say that, I want to give one warning because I think it's important for us to understand this. God is patient, but this matter is urgent. Never forget that. God is patient, but this matter is urgent. You see, it says that the people began to question him. And many of the questions they asked, Jesus had already talked to them about. The Messiah is to remain forever. How can you say the Son of Man? Who is the Son of Man? It's like they, you know, sometimes you talk to somebody and they're all in their head trying to figure out something. They're like, well, I want to do this, but if I do this, and I'm going to do this, and this, and this, and this. You know, they have all these questions and just talking circular. And you're like, you're talking about my conversation I had with somebody yesterday. Um, it's kind of like that's where they're at. And Jesus doesn't really answer their question. But instead, he just pushes home the urgency of the matter. He says to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. And then he says in verse 36, while you have the light, believe in him. The emphasis is, is believe now. I, if you've heard the gospel, you've heard about Christianity, but you have to put your trust in Christ. Don't delay. While you have the light, believe in the light, he says. As believers, a good reminder for all of us. We all uh, can slip into this tendency of delaying our obedience to God. And God says, while you have it, don't delay And so in light of that, 
In light of that warning, what does it mean for us to make much of Christ? We see this most clearly in verse 36. And there's this uh, kind of uh, process or order that's important. While you have the light, verse 36, believe in the light. I've got to be honest with you. If you haven't believed in Jesus, it comes with, comes with a cost. It comes with some, some extra stuff, if you will. If you have believed in Jesus, I want to remind you of this. Believe in the light. Now notice the so that. So that you might become sons of light. We believe and trust in him. And in doing so, we become sons of light. What does it mean to be sons of light? The scriptures use this language elsewhere uh, in the Gospel of John and and even in the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus talks about being uh, the light of the world. We're the salt of the earth and the light of the world. But he's the light of the world. Yes, he's the light of the world and we reflect him. We are called to believe in him and by believing in him to become sons of light. What does light do? Light reveals Darkness. It exposes darkness. It, it, puts, uh, it, it lights up others' things that, that, that we might see. That's the, the whole point. And, and so to be sons of light is to reflect the light of Christ. To reflect Him. And so that's, we're called to reflect Him in our life. To live for Him. To make much of Him. To, to bear His light is to live our life so that we make much of Him. It's the, it's the idea of a spotlight. You know what a spotlight does, right? Nobody, nobody looks at the spotlight up in the rafter. One day we're going to use this beautiful stage behind here. It's going to be finished. But there's probably going to be some spotlights somewhere. Maybe one of these are a spotlight. No one in a play goes, man, that spotlight is nice. Right? Because the spotlight puts the, the focus on the, on the main character. It puts the focus on the, on the person doing the solo. It puts the focus on the one on the stage. We're called to to be the spotlight, not making much of ourselves, but making much of him, making much of Christ. And I think there's a second way in which we make much of Christ. We make much of Christ by bearing the light of Christ, but also we make much of light, much of Christ when we point to Christ who has been lifted up. See, Christ was lifted up once on the cross, but he continues to draw people to himself as the gospel is made known. See, when we declare the gospel... We, we are, we are uh, presenting Christ lifted up. And as we present Christ lifted up, God still does what he says he will do. And he draws people to himself. So if the glory of God is reflected most fully in the cross, how can we not share the message that most fully displays his glory? That's what we're called to, to make much of him. See, we we use this phrase at the end of our our services. As you go, make much of Christ. There's a danger, though, in doing that all the time. Taglines just become familiar words to us that we we don't take on their meaning and embrace their meaning. Today, when you hear that, I want you to embrace fully our mission to make much of Christ. Now, I actually want us to enter into a time of prayer thinking about how we can grow in making much of Christ. It begins by reflecting on who God is. Uh, These questions up here that were in my notes, but not on the notes that I have in front of me, are good questions to consider, um, to think about. Not not first and foremost what you're going to do for Christ, but think if God is committed to making much of himself, and that is to provoke us to make much of him, we ought to be people who think a lot about how God has made much of himself. 
We ought to be a people who, who think about the glory of Christ. Have we believed in Him? Start there. If you have not believed in Him, believe. While the light is here, believe in the light. Are you treasuring Him? Are you reflecting on Him and growing in your affection for Him? Are you resting in the, the promise of forgiveness and the, the freedom that comes uh, from, from knowing the accusations no longer stick? Do you walk around all the time entertaining accusations and not living in the freedom of, of forgiveness? It's so easy to, to do that, to see only through the lens of ourselves rather than the lens of what Christ has done for us. And as we think about what he's done for us, it moves us to think about how we're reflecting him. Who are you praying for? Who are you seeking to share the gospel for? Who do you need to have over for lunch or go out for coffee with? Who do you need to serve? We think about what it means for us to make much of Christ. It's small decisions that we make every day. But it flows out of us first and foremost, treasuring Christ and reflecting on him and glorying in him that we might glorify him. So I want to I invite you to take some time to reflect.